one missing piece in the sense of the puzzle is this question of life. How do you integrate this within this cosmic story? We're now at the point where we can start to try to integrate these different areas and try to understand how do they fit together. And to me, one of the really exciting, interesting questions is in what ways, to what extent, are the conditions for life actually connected to these basic properties of the universe? The life cycle of stars, for example, is potentially intimately connected to the potential for life. And I mean, to some extent, it is intimately connected to our own existence. We already know that because most of what we are made of, at least a large amount of what we're made of, was produced in stars. But maybe there are even additional links between this stellar life cycle and our existence, which is just mind-boggling to <laughs> consider. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I am talking to Martin Salien, researcher and associate professor of astronomy with specialization in astrophysics at Uppsala University. Martin Salien is a natural sciences fellow within the theme Exoplanets and Biological Activities on Other Worlds at SCAS right now. And this is the first episode in our theme Life and Outer Space. So from the safe space of the SCAS podcast studio, we are now traveling to galaxies far, far away. And just by accident, this recording is done on May 4th. May the force be with us. Very welcome to SCAS Talks, Martin. Thank you very much. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Sure. I'm Martin Salien and I'm a researcher in cosmology, astrophysics, and now also doing some research on astrobiology-related topics, trying to connect these things. Some might call this cosmobiology, perhaps. So my background is in sort of astronomy, astrophysics, theoretical physics, and so I'm now working at Uppsala University and this year here at SCAS. So you already said a little bit about your different disciplines and your background, but very briefly, what is your research about? My research in cosmology and astrophysics concerns two main areas. One is the evolution of large-scale structure in the universe. And so that's looking at how galaxies form over very large volumes uh, in the universe over time. And then related to that, but also a bit separate, is uh, the question of how the first galaxies in the universe form, so not too long after the Big Bang. And so the other part is looking at the more recent times, what's happening then. And from these kinds of studies, one can try to learn things about what the universe consists of. And cosmology, broadly, is a science that tries to investigate the origins, the structure and the evolution on large scales of the universe as a whole. So that's one area. And then what I've been doing here is to try to connect these things that I've been doing to the conditions for life to exist within galaxies. So there's that connection. Very interesting. I'm excited to hear more about this. For me, a quite new topic. So how come you got interested in this subject from the beginning? My interest in astronomy, cosmology, I guess it's to do with this big picture. The step isn't too far. I really am fascinated by, for example, the idea that we can more or less describe 
the evolution of the universe from fractions of a second until today, broadly speaking. Okay, there are some missing pieces of this puzzle, but nonetheless, we can put together this big picture, which is, even that, I think, is absolutely incredible. Mind you, we might discover that maybe there was something that we got wrong. Who knows? But on the whole, we have a a pretty robust, as, as far as we can tell, description, which holds together, at least, on scientific grounds. That's an achievement, certainly. And so with that, one missing piece in the sense of the puzzle is this question of of life. How do you integrate this within this cosmic story? We're now at the point where we can start to try to integrate these different areas and try to understand how do they fit together. And to me, one of the really exciting, interesting questions is in what ways, to what extent, are the conditions for life actually connected to these basic properties of the universe? That to me is just an amazing, even amazing thought to consider that there actually can be some kind of connection like that. Well, the life cycle of stars, for example, is potentially intimately connected to the potential for life. And I mean, to some extent, it is intimately connected to our own existence. We already know that because most of what we are made of, at least a large amount of what we're made of, was produced in stars. But maybe there are even additional links between this stellar life cycle and our existence, which is just mind-boggling to (laughs) consider. So if we start from the beginning, what is cosmology and what are the basics that we, I'm meaning now me and the listeners, should know to understand what you're doing? As I said a little bit before, cosmology deals with the origin, structure, and evolution of the universe as a whole. So we're looking at really the big picture. What we try to understand is what are the fundamental constituents of the universe? What kind of stuff is is the universe made of in terms of matter? So we know now that it seems that about 20-odd percent of the universe consists of dark matter, this kind of matter that really only acts through gravitation. It's not visible, it's only seen through its gravitational effects. And then our ordinary matter, the the matter that you and I are made from, for example, that is about 5% of the total budget. And then we have something around 70-ish percent, which is this dark energy, another unseen stuff that we don't really know what it is, but it seems that it's there somehow. And in the recent past, it became increasingly important for determining how the universe is evolving. So, so we see that the universe appears to be accelerating in, in its expansion. And that's caused, as we describe it, by this dark energy. On top of this, we can add the discoveries, if we go a little bit further back, if we go back to the time of the 1920s or so. So from that time onward, essentially, we've had our worldview completely remade in in a sense, in that we now know that there are vast numbers of galaxies. We're not living in one single big galaxy, and, and that's all there is. There's actually vast numbers of galaxies, and we have a universe which actually is expanding. Those are the main features of what we know. We can also describe really the evolution of the universe from very early times. So we're talking about fractions of a second after the Big Bang. So we can describe how the seeds of galaxies, 
the seeds of what later become galaxies are formed at that time. We can describe how the basic building blocks of matter gradually build up and form in those early periods of time. So you form some of the first nuclei, hydrogen, helium, for example, at that time. And then we can trace that through forwards in time and really describe how galaxies form and how the large-scale structure of matter is distributed and evolving. So I, I guess that's a not entirely short answer to, to your question, but, but that's the kind of picture that we're able to put together. How can we know so much, like from the, you say, less than a second of the Big Bang? What we do is we combine astronomical observations with information that we collect on Earth. So, for example, one important thing we need is to know how matter behaves, especially how matter behaves in the early universe. And those times, because the universe has expanded since that time, now it's a lot cooler than it was then. It was quite hot those times. That means that you need to understand particle physics, nuclear physics. And that we can understand from experiments on Earth. So we take what we know from Earth, from particle accelerators and other kinds of experiments, and we use that to say something about how would the universe, how would matter in the universe behave at those early times. And then we combine that with a model which describes how matter moves within space and throughout time. And that's given by general relativity. That's the model we have to describe this. So combining astronomical observations so we can observe, for example, the light that was emitted very shortly after the Big Bang and has been traveling to us is called the cosmic microwave background. We can, we can measure that and we can measure its properties and that tells us about what kind of processes were happening at that time. This is about 400,000 years or so after the Big Bang. And then we can measure how galaxies are distributed. We can observe them with telescopes and see how are they distributed at different points in time. And that lets us understand how these structures grow and form, which in turn depends on, for example, how much of this dark energy is there. Fascinating. You said before that there are a lot of galaxies. So do we know how many galaxies there are? To start answering this question, we need to think about what can we see? What are we able in principle to see? And so we can only really answer that question by talking about the observable universe, because there's stuff outside of what we are ever going to be able to see, presumably, but we can't actually see it. So we can't say what's there. But if we talk about the observable universe, that part that we can in principle see, because the speed of light is finite, right? Then the estimates are that there's at least 200 billion galaxies. And then there's a fair degree of uncertainty still. There's some estimates claiming that there's up to 2 trillion galaxies. And this is to do with, in the earlier parts of the universe, many galaxies are relatively faint. They're, they were far away. It's hard for us to see them. And so we haven't really been able to study those populations to a great degree as yet. So some claim it could be like 2 trillion, but... There's also other indications. So those galaxies would, in principle, they would still contribute to a kind of very faint background glow. And from trying to look for that, one can infer that maybe it's about twice the number that we have seen. So maybe somewhere around four or five hundred billion is our best guess at this point. But if we look to the future, we're going to have the James Webb Space Telescope, which is soon going to be launched, which is going to let us look 
much further back in time. So now we're talking about the first few hundred million years after the Big Bang to map out the galaxies there. So that will give us a better idea. And then there's also the radio telescope coming, which is called the Square Kilometer Array, which is going to look at the same period of time and will also let us put limits on this number. Another both basic and big question. So we're talking about life in outer space. So what is life? And what are the basics for it? It's, yeah, it's, it's a big and important question and one that there's no single simple answer to. So there's plenty of definitions of what life really is all about. We can take as a starting point one definition that NASA has produced in this context. And so they talk about a self-sustained chemical system which is capable of undergoing Darwinian evolution. That's one possible definition. Some definitions do not explicitly talk about evolution or Darwinian evolution. They focus more exclusively on simply the properties of the system of one individual, let's say, itself. Some don't talk about chemical system and focus more on more general principles. So, but I think one pretty common element of this is that, okay, it needs to be somehow self-sustaining. That's pretty basic requirement. It needs to be some sort of open system which can contain its own environment in some way. So the cell would be a good example of that, for example, but it would still need to be able to exchange material with the external world because it needs nutrients, for example, or it needs to get rid of waste products. And then it needs to be able to, in some way, at least adapt and respond to changes in the environment, for example, and probably also needs to have some kind of internal signaling system so that it can coordinate processes that carry out these functions. And then, okay, one can then add reproduction, which is pretty common to do, but some don't include that. Some some do, yeah. So those are some considerations that people make. So the overarching research question of your project that you're pursuing now here at SCAS is which are the best galactic habitats for life? And can you tell us a little bit more about it? What exactly are you doing in this project? The goal is to try to understand better in which types of environments within a galaxy or among galaxies as a whole, in which sort of circumstances are the prospects for life to develop or to simply survive? In which cases are the conditions better or worse? And so here... I'm trying to connect what I, I referred to before, our understanding of how large-scale structure forms in the universe, how galaxies form over time, etc. And so here I'm trying to connect that to what would be the conditions for life to be able to live in such galaxies. One of the things which is crucial here to understand is to do with catastrophic events. Within a galaxy, you will typically get various kinds of radiation and particle emission forming. And so the ones that usually discussed and the ones I'm thinking of here, these are the main ones, are supernovae, gamma ray bursts, and well, X-ray radiation from black holes. And so those are three different kinds of events which all can produce very highly energetic particles and radiation which are ejected at high speed and can hit sites of life, sites where life is present and would potentially kill off that life. So if you want to understand the prospects for life to exist within a galaxy, it's relevant to look at how many and how energetic 
such events would tend to form in such a galaxy or in part of a galaxy. And you can relate the prevalence of these different types of events to the properties of a galaxy. So you can relate it to the mass of the galaxy, the metallicity of the galaxy, so meaning how much of the material content is in, uh, well, what we call metals, but this is really heavier elements, basically, of sort of any kind. So you can relate these event rates to such properties, and you can also relate it to sort of the local environment. If you happen to have a part of a galaxy where you have a lot of stars forming in that region, well, that will tend to eventually generate supernovae, for example, because as the stars reach the end of their life, they may then turn into these supernova explosions. So that's where they come from. But then we can also think about star formation as something positive, because at least typically how we think about life in, in the galaxy is that it will exist around a star, on a planet around a star. And so if we want to have life in a galaxy, okay, if we have many stars, that should be better in the sense that there are more possibilities. So there will be some kind of trade-off like this, that on, on the one hand, the higher the star formation, the more potential sites for life, but on the other hand, you can also get a lot of these supernova explosions, at least during some phase. So these are, well, at least some of the aspects that determine the habitability of a galaxy. We can go into more details also. Can you give us some insight how you will actually do to investigate this? So what I'm doing is using output from large simulations of how structure forms in the universe. So one can set up large simulations where you basically throw out matter lumps. And then as you run the simulation forward, those lumps attract each other and start forming what will become galaxies. And so then one can track the formation and the properties of galaxies in large volume over time. So from early times in the universe until today. So I use output from such a simulation. And then knowing some of the galaxy properties, like the ones I described, mass and metallicity, then I can use models which describe how these, what's called transients, so supernovae, gamma ray bursts, and also this AGN activity. I can use models to tell me how many such events to expect. And then I can combine these pieces of information to tell me, for example, what fraction of the stars in a given galaxy will not be killed off by such events or life around such stars within some time frame that, that I define. That's the kind of modeling I do and the type of analysis I'm pursuing. But one of the things that I'm now adding on to this, because this question has been looked at by various authors in the past, and I, I guess one can say that this is a field that exists, but looking at these questions is still a bit undeveloped. And so there's a lot more to be done in, in this area. And one reflection of that is that on many of the questions or, or many of the conclusions, for example, exactly which type of galaxy would be the ideal one, let's say, I mean, there's no clear consensus in this as yet. One thing I'm trying to add to this is to look at not only saying, okay, we want to make sure that life is not killed off by these catastrophic events, 
That's, of course, a relevant requirement. But we can also do what we often do in, in this kind of area. We, we use Earth as an example, the one example we know of where there is life and intelligent life as well. And if we look at the astronomical, astrophysical history of our solar system, we can see that Earth and our solar system has been exposed to this kind of what I refer to as catastrophic events, but such events, supernovae, for example, which have not been completely catastrophic for Earth. So over the past tens of million years, we know that there's been, let's say, tens of supernovae which have gone off fairly close to Earth. So the estimate is that if a supernova goes off eight parsec away from Earth or closer, then that would or any planet, that is, uh, it would kill off all life. But further away, there's a chance to, for life to survive. Roughly, that's the estimate. Out of these supernovae that we know of that have gone off, some have gone off between sort of around 50 to 100 parsec away, thereabouts. So they are reasonably far away, but still close enough that you can see the effects of them on Earth. And so you can see their effects also in the geological record, where you can see enrichments associated specifically with supernovae. So we can see that there's some connection, and you can also link this to the fossil record, where you can see at least correlations. Exactly what the mechanisms are for this, I think, is not entirely clear today, although there are ideas. But the point of this is that on this basis, one could then ask the question, okay, we don't want too many supernovae, or at least too close, because that's going to be really killing off everything. But also maybe, and this is the question, to what extent could such events actually be in some way affecting and possibly even pushing along the conditions for life and perhaps affecting the evolutionary process on Earth? And so I've then simply added in also this kind of requirement. Okay, life shouldn't be killed off in a galaxy, but also you want to make sure that you have supernovae going off close enough to a planet like for Earth. And when you add those two combined constraints, then that narrows down the possibilities fairly significantly, it seems. So that's the question I'm, I'm investigating now. The distances that you talk about, can you just explain what they mean? I use parsec, and so, for example, then the kill radius of a supernova. When we think of a, a planet, how close to the supernova will it, everything be killed off? So that's 8 parsec, that corresponds to about 26 light years. And so if we talk about 50 parsec, that's about 160 light years. And if we think about galaxy itself, the total size of the radius of, of a galaxy, let's say, is, is usually of the order of around 100 kiloparsec. So that's 100,000 light years then. So that's uh, just some numbers to orient what kind of scales we're talking about here. So the supernova could work as a sort of catalyst also for, for life? So the idea is that there's certainly the possibility that this could be the case. I think the geological, fossil and astronomical evidence that exists certainly point in such a direction. And then to understand exactly to what extent that is the case, I think then more 
investigations like this, for example, are needed. But there's evidence like that, and there's also, I mean, we know that, for example, cosmic ray particles, which is the kind of thing we're talking about, we know that it can affect the atmosphere, cloud formation, for example, it seems. And we know that such cosmic particles or radiation can affect genetic material, causing mutations. So there are like both more circumstantial uh, evidence and more concrete evidence that, that such kinds of processes can take place, at least in principle. So I would say, yeah, that there's certainly a good chance that it could be like that. And another aspect in this is also sort of speculative, but it's, it's one of the things that has come up through my presence here at SCUS, is that nickel is a catalyst for certain biomolecules, for the formation of them. And one of the things that's formed in supernovae or rejected in supernovae is nickel. So many of the heavy elements, they form in stars, and then supernovae spread those things around. And so another, well, at least fascinating idea is the possibility, at least, that nickel enrichment from supernovae could have a role to play in the prospects for at least biomolecules forming in particular regions. And then there's a step from that to saying that that would have a, an impact on life existing in such a region. But at least there's a tantalizing possibility that such a connection could exist. And then you would get these kind of interesting tensions between, on the one hand, okay, lots of supernovae, bad, because all life dies. But on the other hand, okay, not too few, because, well, maybe these kinds of processes help. Yeah, our next guest within this topic is Anna Neubeck, I guess. You're referring a little bit to... Exactly, that's right, that's right. So we will hear a lot more about that in an upcoming episode. You were talking a little bit about distance, being close, being further away to supernovae and so on. A little bit related to that, our position, or the position of a planet in a galaxy, not only our position. But now our solar system is lying in the outskirts of the Milky Way. What is the optimal position in a galaxy, or at least a good position? If you look at the Milky Way then, it seems that our position is probably fairly where you would expect it to be. So in some sense, optimal. So you can estimate what the chances are of being killed off by supernovae again. So if you're too close to the center, that's not good because you're going to have problems with supernovae. So you have more star formation there, you have more supernovae and you couldn't survive. And then on the other hand, if you're very far out from the center, then the metallicity drops, and it's pretty hard to form Earth-like planets in those parts. And also, if you go in a different direction, if you're very close to the center, the metallicity could also potentially be too high, so that what would then happen is that you only really form these really huge giant planets, and you couldn't form Earth-like planets. So you need a a reasonable middle-range metallicity to be able to form Earth-like planets with any degree of efficiency. So when you put those different pieces together, it turns out that somewhere between sort of 5 and 10 kiloparsec is roughly the range away from the center. And this, this matches pretty well where we are, basically. So we found a good spot. Yeah. I mean, it's a question of chicken and egg here, but... Yeah, of course. Another related question is, is what is the significance then of the type of the star that the planet is orbiting? I'm thinking a little bit about exoplanets. So, for example, if the star is a red dwarf, what does that mean? First of all, I guess we can talk about the exoplanets briefly. And so 
Today, we have, I think, about a bit over 4,000 confirmed exoplanets. So these are planets orbiting stars outside our solar system, and so in, in our galaxy. And so one of the things that tends to happen with these red dwarfs or M-dwarf stars, same thing, more or less, is that they have quite a low luminosity. And so this means that the habitable zone, the range of distances away from the star where life could exist, if you know, where the planet is located, is quite small. So that would tend to make it a bit more difficult to put the planet exactly at the right place. These stars tend to be more variable, it seems. So that means the degree of stability in the conditions that the star provides, that degree of stability is less than for, for example, sun-like star like, like ours. And also because small star planets tend to be quite close to the star, you get this tidal locking, typically, which means that one side of the planet will essentially always face the star. And so you have one side which is always illuminated and one which is not. And so there's been some debate over this. What really are the conditions for life to be able to exist on such worlds? And it was a long time argued that these kinds of circumstances would make it so extremely hot on one side and so extremely cold on one side, for example, that it would just not work. It would be very detrimental. I think the latest research that's been done on this suggests actually that heat transfer, which is the central element here, can be quite effective on such planets. So you, you can have an atmosphere that actually transports heat quite efficiently around the planet, and also that you can get cloud formation, which helps regulate temperatures, and also the water. If you have a water-covered planet, that can also help regulate this. So perhaps it's not a terrible thing after all, and maybe actually it could work fairly well. I think the last word hasn't been said, but it's looking like those are not prohibitively bad effects. And then one can add to this also that these types of stars that we're talking about, M dwarfs or, or red dwarfs, they are also the most numerous stars. So there's possibly more of those kinds of stars than there are more heavier stars. And they tend to have more Earth-like planets as well. So they really, even if the conditions generally for life to be able to exist around such stars was a bit low, the sheer numbers might make up for that also. Yeah, because from what I've understood since we know more and more about exoplanets and the discussion is being a bit more like, well, there should be life somewhere. Yeah, that's, that's a very, very common <laughs> intuition, let's call it maybe. Is there any ground for this intuition? What do you say? The cautious thing to say, at least in, in this, uh, is, is that, well, we don't know. Sorry, that's boring. That's um, okay. <laughs> no, but the, the cautious thing to say, I guess, here is that there, there's still sufficiently many unknowns that it's very hard to say something with any degree of certainty. However, what one can do is, for example, argue from Earth as an example. So you would say, okay, the circumstances on Earth are typical. If we assume that, then what would that imply? But of course, you need to make assumptions about how common, how easy it is for life to arise in the first place. You need to make assumptions about how easy it is for life to survive and evolve. I guess how I would view it is that 
there are many potentially very small numbers involved, and there's at least some very, very large numbers involved. And exactly how those will work out, that's going to be really the key. But at this point, it's really hard to say something about all of those things. I guess a pragmatic point of view is that if life is not completely extraordinarily rare, then at least you have some non-negligible probability. I think this is the kind of argument people would make. And that non-negligible probability multiplied by hundreds of billion should hopefully lead to more than one case. Whether we would be able to observe any of the potential other cases, I guess that's still not clear even from that, but this is the sort of argument that's being made. We can go back a little bit to your your modeling. First of all, I was thinking about this modeling and simulation that you do. What kind of data do you put in there to start with? Where does that come from? Right. So the initial simulation is based on, essentially, we have a small number of parameters, a handful of parameters, let's say, which describe the cosmological standard model and what values those parameters have. So you, you take those, you put them in this computer code, which produces what's called an N-body simulation. And so that generates some kind of initial distribution of matter at an early time based on these values of these parameters that you put in. And then it evolves it forward using general relativity. From that you get basically output which tells you at different points in time how are all these matter lumps, where are they in space. And so many of them will be lumped together into what will become galaxies or what are galaxies and so from that from those outputs of all the locations of the matter lumps you can map out where are all the different galaxies and on top of that you can put in models for how the what's called the baryonic physics or the the everyday kind of physics the gas physics let's say that happen inside the galaxy you can then sort of glue on such physics on top of those matter lumps and that will tell you about star formation and the metallicity And so you get a long list of such matter lumps, which constitute galaxies, and then some of the properties based on this glued-on model. That's essentially the output data. And then on top of that, you can then, as I briefly mentioned, you can then add on additional modeling to understand how these supernovae, for example, form within galaxies. How many? Yes, and then in the next step, after you've worked with your models and you've found out more about the conditions for galactic life, How can you go and test your models in praxis, so to say? And I'm thinking a little bit about that a lot of physics started with theories, people having thought experiments or models, and then later on these hypotheses were shown to be true by experimental methods. So how could you envision that for your model in the future? Yeah, one problem that we have is that we know of one planet where there is life, as things stand. So if we really want to test these kinds of ideas in that way, well, we can't do that today because we know of one place. So what we would like for that, of course, is to have 
several places where we knew that life existed and then we could look at what are the different kinds of conditions in those locations and does that match up with what we believe, etc. That's not possible. But certainly we can try to compare, for example, as I said, use Earth as a paradigm, use Earth as an example and, and look at, okay, if we assume that Earth is typical and then we use the kinds of conditions we can see Earth has experienced, then what would that imply for the possibility, the prevalence of life in different locations? And, and that's, of course, not the direct test, but in general, this is the sort of, this is the kind of testing you can do at present with these kind of models. It's a kind of statistical test you look at, okay, what kind of statistical conclusions can you draw from this model? as regards the conditions, the probability for life to exist. So, for example, you could say, okay, if I have this model, if it predicted that life on Earth was extraordinarily improbable, then one way to interpret this would be to say that then that could mean that the model is wrong, or it could mean that actually life on Earth is really, really, really that rare. And then you're still left with the question of, well, but then, so why are we here then, if that's the case? Well, okay, we were lucky. Or you could argue, as some do, that that, there could be some kind of selection effect coming from the fact that, I mean, we simply are here and we couldn't observe something very, very different from what we do observe. So there are different kinds of conclusions that one can draw, but ultimately we simply need to understand the conditions for life to form. If you really want to test the whole thing, then that's where you need to go. And, and that's, of course, fairly far away today. How far away is fairly far away? <laughs> if we only knew. There's always the possibility of serendipity in these things. So who knows? You know, there might be a completely unexpected discovery in the next few years. Who knows? But more realistically, perhaps, to detect these traces of life, people want to measure very accurately the spectra electromagnetic spectra coming from exoplanets. And so there are a number of different experiments, telescopes trying to do this, but it's still fairly early days. People in Uppsala, for example, are involved in these kinds of projects. There's the uh, extremely large telescope, for example, that's going to come later on in maybe a decade or so. That will at least take one step further. So you want to be able to detect traces of processes which could be life originating in life. Uh, and you could see then, for example, in the spectrum of the atmosphere, you could see some particular signature of, of some compound. So for example, oxygen or whatever it would be. But that's not a direct probe, ultimately. But it could potentially at least give us strong reason to believe that life existed on other planets. And, and so that's, that's the first step. If we were to be very optimistic, I guess, Within one or two decades, we might have a clearer idea and maybe actually some detections that could point, point to the future. There is this claim of phosphine on Venus, which has been quite publicized recently. But I think we simply don't know what to make of that for sure. So that's one part. And then we need to understand, I guess, the biology and the astrochemistry also a lot better in detail. And if you can really put the pieces together there, maybe then you can make a pretty strong case. Yeah, it will be exciting to follow this subject and see what happens. 
And we will hear a lot more about the use of telescopes to search for habitable worlds in an upcoming episode of SCUS Talks, where Nikolai Piskunov will tell us more about his research. So you discover life now, either you in, in the models or, I mean, in a big collaborative effort, of course, you obviously said it will take a lot of people and disciplines to do this, but you discover life in outer space. What's next? In one way, I guess, knowing or thinking about how we tend to be as humans, I guess next is go there <laughs> somehow. <laughs> that would be one reaction, at least. Go there, touch it. If, you know, we discovered it, but not physically been there, let's say. But then in terms of exploration and knowledge, I mean, of course, we would want to understand more about that life. In what ways it's similar or different from life on Earth? Where did it come from? all such questions and then of course try to understand if we found life in like one place of course we would want to try to understand what's particular about that location so that we would be able to go and try to find other places where we might actually also uncover life then so it'd be all about trying to understand what made that life be there i guess that's what i would think and then of course it will have a huge impact on Well, at least I think that's the question one can ask. Well, how, what would it do for culture generally? And I guess there's the idea that such a discovery would have a huge impact on humanity. And I guess it probably would in some sense. It would be a historic watershed moment, certainly. But on the other hand, I wonder. I think also to some extent we're getting quite used to the idea that maybe when that day comes, if it comes, might not be as overwhelming as we had imagined. I don't know. We can change gears a little bit and talk about research environments and multidisciplinary research. You mentioned previously that you need input from a lot of different disciplines in this matter, on this topic. So if you look particularly at your research project and to your own good, so to say, what other disciplines could you benefit from to collaborate with? One area certainly is geology. As I said, you can find traces of supernova events in the geological record. There's a connection like that. Also, geochemistry, sort of astrobiology area, the chemistry and biology of molecules in space something like that. And that's dealt with in slightly different disciplines. That's absolutely relevant for what I'm doing to understand that. And that's something I really did not know much about myself. Certainly those. I've had also good discussions with computer science uh, people, for example. There's also in my own field or part of my own field in astrophysics, I need the expertise of other people People who know more than I do about, for example, star formation uh, processes. I guess those are the most immediate ones. I, I guess I could add to this also geophysics more generally, for example, how planet atmospheres operate, for example, and how they are affected by radiation particles, etc. That's the most immediate. But then I guess I want to add to this also. I've had many stimulating discussions which you know, trigger ideas and new lines of thought with people from all kinds of disciplines here. Also, people who are into the history of ideas, philosophy, anthropology, many different areas. 
Yeah, because you're right now in a multidisciplinary environment here at SCAS, meeting a lot of scholars from quite different disciplines than your own. What kind of uh, input can you get here at SCAS from the other fellows? I guess the main thing that, that I've found useful is, one is, okay, you, you get access to expertise in different areas than your own, perhaps. And, and sometimes that's very useful to discuss some question you have and that comes up. That's one thing. But more broadly, you get a lot of different perspectives on your research and your field in general. We have our seminars, for example. I found that very stimulating because with my own seminar, I got a lot of feedback and, and questions that, well, I guess I just wouldn't have reflected on in the way that those questions were asked, coming from different kinds of disciplines. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, okay, now I'm going to solve a particular technical problem that I'm working on, but it does provide different perspectives and opens up new lines of thinking. I guess that's what I've found. And also simply the ability to view your field from outside is really helpful. Yeah, of course. It's always good to take a different perspective and uh, leave your own bubble for yeah. a little while at least. Quite. <laughs> then you can step back into it to do your research. Yeah, no, but this is kind of back and forth, I think, and that's uh, very refreshing. Yeah, and your project is part of the theme Exoplanets and Biological Activities on Other Worlds, as I said in the introduction, within the Natural Science Program at SCAS. I was just wondering if you can say a few words about this program. This is a program to develop support research in this area and try to examine, look at, well, these kinds of research questions. And so there's an effort at Uppsala searching for exoplanets. So this is related to that. And so the program is to enrich, I think, this, this activity and, and also connect it to biological activity. Then how can these things be related in, in different ways? And one key question, I guess, is in the field is what I was mentioning, that if you're going to observe these spectra from exoplanet atmospheres, how will you connect that or relate that to potential biological activity on those planets? That's one of the key questions, I think, for interpreting those kinds of observations. Thank you very much for being on SCAS Talks and talking to me and our listeners, of course, about your very exciting research. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the first episode in the theme Life in Outer Space, and I have talked to Martin Salien, researcher and associate professor of astronomy with specialization in astrophysics at Uppsala University and natural science fellow here at SCAS. In the upcoming episodes on the same topic, life in outer space, we will learn more about the search for exoplanets and habitable worlds from Nikolai Piskunov and about nickel as the catalyst for the building blocks of life from Anna Neubeck. We hope that you want to join us on this fascinating journey to other galaxies and planets. But first, we are taking a detour to Africa. In the next episode, we will learn more about historical ecologies in Africa, more specifically Zanzibar, from Stephanie Vin jones If you have listened to SCAS Talks previously, you already know 
that our earlier episodes have covered global governance, the study of languages, and that we have also dived into the topic of diversity. The very first three episodes of SCAS Talks, recorded about a year ago, were about different aspects of the coronavirus pandemic. These are quite interesting to listen to now as well. The variety of the topics and scholars featured in SCAS Talks is a direct reflection of the multidisciplinary environment at the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study, and we hope that you find something of interest for you. Do you like SCAS Talks? Please recommend this podcast to your colleagues and friends. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Martin Salian once again for joining SCAS Talks and of course you for listening. Bye for now.